We're in a series called Follow, and it's primarily coming from the words that Jesus would so often say when he was uh, here on earth and he was, you know, sort of gathering his disciples and he was teaching, he would often just say a simple phrase, uh, follow me. You know, that's our, that's our theme verse sort of for this series is just what did that look like? So here's, here's a, an example. When Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, which we know is Peter, and Andrew. Is, these guys were throwing a net into the water because they were fishermen. They fished for a living. But Jesus called out to him and said, come, say the words out loud with me. Ready? Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people, which sounds really weird, but it made sense in the context of what Jesus does, right? Fishers of men. And they left their nets, right? And at once they followed him, right? This is the, this is the, the definition, if you will, of disciple or discipleship is followers, right? We're following someone. We're disciples of someone. We are, we are following them. We're following their teaching. We're following who they are. And so there is this beautiful picture of follow, but in today's time, people struggle with what does it look like to follow Jesus? And many people struggle that it's harder today than it's ever been. Like it's harder today than it was for my grandparents. It's harder today than it was, you know, back in the golden age of whatever, like whatever's in your head, Right? That, that, that somehow it's harder. And yet I would argue that the, the idea of following Jesus really isn't. Maybe how it kind of looks in context gets us tripped up, but it really does have a lot more to do with who we are and how we have chosen as a church corporate culture to follow Jesus. So last week I shared a visual with you. I had Nate on the screen uh, jogging and running in place, you know, kind of giving you a visual of all the things we do that some, for some reason... This is just a natural, natural gravitation in the heart of men and women. Is, is we go from this follow Jesus, simple, put down your nets, follow him, to what it looks like to be and to do good Christian things, to be a good Christian, to do the things that a good Christian would do, right? So, that, so something happens where it becomes all about our effort, and it comes about all about the rights and wrongs, and it becomes all about sort of our ability to follow the rules and kind of do these things. And, and it kind of loses its root in understanding just the simplicity of what it means to follow Jesus, to follow after God. So last week we talked, but we kind of went back to the, again, you can go back and listen to it. We, we read through Matthew 23. It's the great commandment. What does it mean? What's the base ask in terms of what Jesus is asking of us? Well, he's asking us to love God, which is that commitment and devotion with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And to love others as you love yourself, right? Which is this idea of God's love. Last week I talked a lot about it, can't rephrase it enough, but this idea of God's love being really very different in terms of how Jesus modeled that versus sort of our cheap version of love that we call love, right? Like man, man's love versus God's love. And what does that look like? Loving our neighbors, those who don't think like us, look like us, behave like us. Like what does it look like to love those people? to bless those that curse you, to, to pray for those who mistreat you. And I know what you're already thinking. They mistreat you, and you're like, oh, I'm praying for something, all right? I can tell you, I'm praying, right? You're praying for them to get hit on the way to work, you know, but that's, that's not the right kind of prayer. To pray for those who mistreat you, to bless those who curse you, this is, this is beyond that turn-the-other-cheek, you know, kind of ideal that, 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 that have been kind of passed down to Christians that Jesus said, but, but had a whole lot more context to it. And then it's interesting, the end of that verse, because you'd think that we would get this. Like, I mean, you'd think we get this. The rest of that verse just ends with loving your neighbor as yourself, right? 
Like as much as you love you, and listen, we are, we are just, you would think that nobody would have a problem with this because we love ourselves more than we would love anyone else, right? Most people love themselves far more than they love others. We live in a culture that amplifies sort of loving this sort of authentic, true you over and above anyone else. Like, don't let anything else and don't let anyone else get in front of your authentic, true version of who you are supposed to be. <laughs> we also spend a lot of time judging other people on their actions, but we only judge ourselves on our intentions, right? So I mean, we, we love ourselves so much, we give ourselves so much grace, we judge others on what they did, but that's what they said, and that's what they didn't do, and they didn't do it. But we judge ourselves on our intentions because we want to give ourselves grace. So you would think, listen, with all of that, you would think that we are the most healthy, loving ourselves people in the world. And yet that is not the sad reality. The sad reality is that most people don't have any clue what it is to truly love themselves in a healthy way and to see themselves. This is why we have so much depression and anxiety, why we have so much self-medication with drugs and alcohol and addictions. Um, so much of the identity crisis right now, whether it's political identity crisis, ideology identity crisis, whether it's genders and uh, it, it, all of it, like all, so much of it is rooted in how we see and understand ourselves. So much failure in relationships come from not understanding how to love yourself. Failures in how you see yourself and how you see others in relationship is why relationships are failing. Now, again, understand when I say the word love, I'm talking about our cheap version of what we say love is versus God's love. So today's encounter, uh, we're going to read through a pretty long encounter today that Jesus has with, I'm just telling you the way to describe it, he has this encounter with like the most despicable, uh, deplorable, like you shouldn't even be talking to this person kind of kind of relationship. Like, like we're almost at the midterms. It would be like a Republican talking to a Democrat candidate. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're not even supposed to be in the same hemisphere as them. You know, like you're not even supposed to be talking to them. What are you, what are you doing? This is the significance of the encounter we're getting ready to read. All right. So if you have your Bible, turn to John 4. Okay. Turn to John 4. If you don't, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Uh, but I always encourage you to read out of your own version of the Bible as well, whether it's on your phone app or uh, in front of you. You might see something, God might give you something that I'm not uh, highlighting, but let's go ahead and go right to um, John 4. Jesus knew the Pharisees heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. That was not really a problem, but he knew that they heard that and he was rising in popularity. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize, it was his disciples that were on the doing it. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria on the way. So this was an area of their country they had to walk through. But again, if you, if you remember last week, I talked about the good Samaritan and about the relationship that the Jews and Samaritans just didn't have. They didn't have them with one another. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sakaar and near the field where Jacob gave to his son. So, you know, Samaria actually had a really amazing biblical uh, root in terms of the Jewish history. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well, and it was about noontime. So it's middle of the day, hottest part of the day, he sits down by the well. And a Samaritan woman, soon a Samaritan woman comes to draw water, and Jesus says to her, please give me a drink. No big deal. He even said the word please. Isn't that nice of Jesus, right? Just give me a drink. 
He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And the woman was surprised. Why? Because Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. Okay, so this is not just an issue of convenience. This is like, I will walk around the long way to not deal or look or even see you. That's, that's the kind of relationship we're talking about, the animosity we're talking about. So she's like surprised. She says to Jesus, look, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman, right? You're a Christian. I'm a, I'm a Muslim, right? You're a Democrat. I'm a Republican. Just pick, any, pick anything you want in terms of those, that kind of anger. This is her response. Why are you asking me for a drink? Like, why would you even think about that? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you'd be asking me, right? Like, you'd be asking me for a drink, and I would give you living water. I I love the fact that Jesus doesn't even kind of respond to her question, like, why would you be asking me for a drink? And he's just like, if you only knew, right? If you only knew, there's three really amazing things that happen in this. If you only knew who you were speaking to, you be you would be wanting my water. That almost sounds a little arrogant, coming from a Jew to a, to a Samaritan. And, and for her, she responds to this, right? She responds to this. She says, but sir, you don't even have a rope or a bucket, right? And this well is very deep. Trust me, I'm out here, you know, all the time. Where would you get this living water? Like, you're, what, are you, what are you even talking about? And and I love this, because this is where she responds, sort of the arrogance of, of what she would appear, Jesus is saying, because she says, do you think you're greater, right, than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? You know, you how can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Leave this up, Tony. Could, like, like, I love this response, because this is honestly, this is very similar to how we respond to things right? When someone tells us they can do better or, or they see something better or more clearly, don't we, don't we get a little defensive, right? Don't we all get a little bit defensive? Like, like, number one, you don't have a bucket. You're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about, right? Okay, this is, I mean, again, this is the political discourse in our current age and time, you know? Well, what's your truth source? My truth, how, you think your truth source is better than Jacob's well? You think that's better than my, his well and his animals drank out of? Who are you? Who are you and what you're talking about? And I'm, don't, don't downplay this, this as a pleasant conversation, right? This is not pleasant up to this point. This is Jesus and a woman kind of by themselves arguing. Who, who are you to tell me that your water is better? This is Jacob's well. Like God gave this to Jacob. And, and I love he replied, he says, well, anyone who drinks this water is going to become thirsty again. <laughs> just, just go straight down logic, right? Anybody who drinks from this well is going to get thirsty again. She would have said yes to that. But those who drink the water I give you will never be thirsty again. Why? Because it becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now, obviously, Jesus way passes the understanding of what water means, but he is telling her that there's something beyond water that we're talking about. You know, you're, you're talking about this water, and I'm telling you this water is going to cause you to be thirsty again. But, man, my water, my living water, it, it refreshes. It bubbles up like a spring and keeps you 
from being thirsty. And it gives eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said. Now, now this is where it gets a little more polite, right? Please, sir. She hasn't said please up to this point. Give me this water. I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. It was already a problem. She's coming there at noontime for a reason. So she says, give me this water. I would love to have that. Like, what you're talking about is great. Sign me up. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Well, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a, a husband. <laughs> I love Jesus on this. <laughs> you don't have a husband, wink, wink. For you've had five husbands. And you're not even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Guys, I don't... I just wish we could get more accurate, like, like, like actors who knew how to portray what was actually going on. Does that make sense? Like, we read over this stuff and skim past it, and I'm just telling you guys, if you think Jesus always spoke and didn't poke buttons and didn't touch things and didn't, like, upset people, you're out of your mind, right? Because he already, he already just got this woman to say please to him, which was a big deal. Samaritans and Jews, period. They've already had an argument about who, who the heck he is to say he's got better water. Now he's starting to touch the thing that's the most sensitive thing in her life. It's the reason she's out there at noon in the heat of the day when no one else is drawing water. He says, yeah. And just lays it out. Oh, yeah. No, you've had five husbands. You don't have a husband, wink, wink, right? You have five husbands. And the guy you're living with now is not even your husband. I'm, again, we, we might think of it today, nah, no big deal. Not, not the case. Like this, this was extreme. So, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Like there's no way anyone would know this. This is a strange Jew that shows up at this well and lays out her story. And I mean, you know, she's responding with like, this is supernatural. You must be a prophet. You're offering eternal life. You're offering living water. You obviously know what you're talking about to a certain degree. Like, like you must be a prophet. You must be the head of, you know, you must be from God and the head of this religious system we all kind of follow. And then watch this. She goes, so tell me, why is it you Jews insist on Jerusalem? It's the only place for worship. While, me, while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship. Now just pause this for a minute. Now go back, go back, Tony. Does that have anything to do with her husband's? Like, does that have anything to do with the current crisis she's living in? No. Man, how often do we do this with God? You know? He like, he like touches something in you about a sin in your life or about an issue that you're having. Just touches that thing. Somebody does it, a pastor, a life group leader, somebody, a friend, a close family member, like says something and God uses them to kind of pick at something that is, is sore and is filled with shame and guilt. And, and, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, hey, let me ask you this. Why do you hate everyone? Right? Like, why do we change the subject? Why do we, why do we immediately, and I, I want you to see this, immediately she goes into 
sort of this rule-based worship that, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have anything to do with her and her life other than the fact that she's a Samaritan. And now she, you know, oh, you know what? You must be a prophet. You just told me all the things I feel the most shame and guilt about. Hey, let's talk about worship. Why, why do you guys insist? Because that's, that's the word she used. Why do you insist it's Jerusalem and say that our worship doesn't even matter when we think it's supposed to be here at the mountain? <laughs> and Jesus responds. I love that Jesus does respond. He says, hey, believe me, dear woman, the time's coming where it's not going to matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. He just kind of wipes the tables. He doesn't, hey, great question about the rules. Doesn't matter. Time's coming. Doesn't matter. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. Now, that's another little dig. You you don't know very much because the Jews know all about him. The salvation comes to the Jews. He is sort of being honest about the fact that the Jews have this history and heritage that comes and and salvation is going to come through the Jews. That's what he meant. He says, but the time is coming. Indeed, it's now here when true worshipers are going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Like Jesus does answer the question by basically saying your question is not really a question. Your question doesn't matter, right? Your question doesn't matter. There's going to come a time, and it's right now, where God wants people to worship in spirit and in truth. This this whole rule-based location thing, I know you guys have had to follow that for a while, but that's not going to matter. And the woman says, well, I know the Messiah is coming. Let me tell you what I know, Jesus. That's your real name. Let me tell you what I know. The Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. Pause here for a minute. Oh, man. It's just so much in this encounter. Like, have you ever gotten into an argument with other Christians where you guys are literally arguing about Christian things, right? That God's this way, and you're like, no, God's this way, and he likes this. No, he doesn't, he likes this. And has anybody ever gotten to that end of the argument to agree to disagree, right? Well, I guess we'll figure out when we get to heaven. Haven't you ever heard that one before, right? I guess we'll just figure out when we get to heaven. Like, we're not, you're not changing my mind that this isn't a big deal. I mean, it's clear you seem to think you know what you're talking about, but you're not changing my mind. Mm-mm. Let me tell you what I know. I know the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's the Christ. When he comes, he's going to explain it all to us. He's going to give us what's really, really, really matters. And here's Jesus' moment. He told her, I am the Messiah. (laughs) Isn't that a mic drop moment? Right? Wouldn't you just love to have an argument with somebody? Can you, men and women and wives and husbands, could you just imagine you guys having an argument and coming to a place of disagreement, and then a wife or a husband goes, I rule it all. Boom. <laughs> right? Like, you just set me up for the greatest mic drop in the world. Oh, when the Messiah comes, he's going to explain it all to us. Yeah? It's me. Jesus is not nearly as dramatic as I am. But that's what just happened. 
That's just, that is literally what just happened. Isn't that fascinating? So I read that part of the story. We're going to read a little bit more of this encounter because it is fascinating. But I want to go back to that. I missed that slide earlier, but it's, it's on here again. Something does happen, guys. Again, that sort of just trips us up. In our discipleship, in our following Jesus, that we just seem to get really struggle between the relationship we have with God versus the rules about following God. Okay, like here, here's this woman. Again, she's a Samaritan, but she's immediately defensive. She's engaging. She's asking questions that don't really matter, but to her they mattered because we all have this tendency to sort of move past the relationship or around the relationship or in addition to an assumed relationship and we go right to the rules. Yeah, but is it this way or is it that way? Yeah, but is it, is it like this or is it like that? You know? I mean, I can't tell you the number of texts and calls and off, or lunch conversations and office conversations I have with people that their primary hang-up, right, isn't on, on who to be in terms of their relationship with God. Their primary hang-up is always on, well, which one do I do? Which, which one do I do? It's not that different. I have, we have premarital conversations and marriage conversations. Nobody's in there going, you know what, how do I just be a better husband? You know? I've had never had anybody ask me that. What's it look like for me just to be a better husband? It's always like, what do I got to do to shut this person up? Right? What do I got to do to make this person happy? Now, again, I, I don't know if this is just the human frailty or the sinful nature in our human selves, but for whatever reason, we sort of just move around, we sort of navigate around, or we just think that it's more important. So it's kind of like, yes, there's a relationship with God, but my relationship with God is dependent on the rules and whether I do it right or don't do it right. And guys, there's so many people asking so many questions, kind of like the one, well, there's so many people asking so many questions in terms of Christian faith, and they're using it as a hang-up to following Jesus, that I just, I want to look at them every once in a while and be like, yeah, I understand what you're asking. Number one, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about, right? That doesn't matter. Like, the significance you're putting on this is not significant at all. Not when it comes to following Jesus. Not when it comes to your relationship with him. Do you have one or not? And here's, here's how Paul addressed the church. And I think I referenced this one last week, so I wanted to read it uh, this week. This is how Paul referenced the church in Galatia. He said, look, Christ has truly set you free. You have to make sure that you stay free. Stay free. Don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Okay? Do not bypass, go, collect $200, you know, whatever the terminology for monopoly is now. Like, do not do that and bypass this and go right back to the rules. You've been set free for a reason. And he gives the example specific to the, Galatia, the church in Galatia. I'm telling you, if you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ is of no benefit to you. Why do you need Jesus if Snipping and clipping is all you need, right? 
Why do you need Jesus if a physical act of doing something is going to make you right with God, is going to settle the, the, the account? He says, I'll say it again, if you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation of the whole law of Moses. This is Paul's way of saying, fine, you want to trust one thing? You've got to trust them all. You want to base it on one thing, the thing that you think is the most important thing? Well, guess what? Now you've got to have them. All of it has to matter. You can't just choose the one. Now all of it has to matter. He says, if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ, and you've fallen away from God's grace. This is my way of saying what, what, what Paul just wrote is that rules, okay, rules do not produce relationships. Following the rules, being a good Christian, doing what a good Christian does, does not produce a relationship with Christ. It doesn't. No more than like, good, I can't even find a good example, but no more than like, like, who would sign up for, just think about your marriage for a minute and your family. Who would sign up for that job without the benefit of the relationship, right? Who would sign up for that? Who would sign up to be wrong all the time, men, right? Who would sign up to, to who would sign up to, like, self-sacrifice? Ladies, who would sign up to clean after up all these people, you know? You don't even take care of yourself. You got to take care of everybody else. Who would sign up for that? Sign up for children who just, they just take your money, <laughs> right? You're poorer than you've ever been because of your children. Who, who in their right mind would think that just by doing those things, you have relationship? No, it is the relationship that fuels those things. It is the relationship that matters. And everything comes from the relationship. Which is why for us, guys, our following of Jesus, to follow Jesus, has to not only come back to the simple call to, for fully devotion, you know, loving with all our heart, soul, and mind, um, you know, loving our neighbors, ourselves, doing the things that we don't have the capacity to do without him through the Holy Spirit in us doing for us. If it doesn't come from this relationship with God, then just like Paul said to the church in Galatia, like if you're just trying to figure that out outside of this relationship, then what, is, what good is the relationship? You don't have one. You're cut off from Christ. You have no grace. There is no forgiveness. And not only that, guys, we are, we are given this relationship to help bring satisfaction and contentment and joy to our lives. Like it is, it is the, like you just talked about that, that water, that, that, that living water. It's something that springs up in you. It's something that will satisfy you forever is this relationship. The rules don't do that, but the relationship does. One more quick example before we go on. I, you know, I, I just shared this not that long ago with, the, with somebody who texted me, and it was kind of like we were talking about this again, rules versus relationship, and, and it, was, it was about something specific, and I said, look, at the end of the day, Here's the problem. Okay, here's the problem. And this is just kind of my quick, you know, again, in text, it's hard, but I said, here's the problem. 
God has set himself up as a heavenly father who loves us. Okay, that's, that's the relationship he wanted because he gave us that language in the word. So that when you and I mess up, when you and I sin or make a mistake or blow it again or whatever the case is, he wants the relationship to be primary so that when we mess up and when we're struggling and when we are weak, we run to him. Like we run and embrace him. What do most Christians do when they sin? They try to run away. They try to hide it. They try to make excuses for it and justify it. Why? Because they don't see a heavenly father. They see a judge. Because it's only rules. And when we slip into rules, all we have is a police and a judge and a warden. That's it. So when we blow it and we didn't do the things we were supposed to do, we got to make excuses for it, we got to justify it, we got to do all these things. But if we see a heavenly father, like I could tell my dad almost anything, right? He, he's going to love me. Dad, I messed up. Dad, I'm not doing well. Dad, I'm struggling. This is the reason he wants the relationship to be primary. And then we have a different view of all those things that we call rules. So here, here's how we, we, we go forward. This is Jesus to the disciples. Okay, so he's going to use this interaction and this encounter with the Samaritan woman with this idea of, of what does this mean in terms of living this out. The disciples come back, and while they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask him, what are you doing talking to her? Why are you talking to her? It's a big deal. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, right? Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Like, like she's, she's partway through her conversion, right? Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one we've been waiting for? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. Remember they went in to get some food? That was kind of the context of the story. But Jesus replied, I have the kind of food you don't know anything about. And, you know, did someone bring him food while we were gone? Like, did someone sneak him a cheeseburger? They don't know. But Jesus has to explain this, because again, not only did he paint the bigger picture for the woman of the well, he wants to paint the bigger picture for the disciples. Guys, my nourishment comes from doing the will of my Father who sent me and from finishing his work. This, this, this thing that satisfies, this thing that stirs up within us, this is happening, Jesus, like even for me. It's finishing God's work. You know the saying, the four months between planting and harvest, but I say to you, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages. The fruit they harvest are people being brought to eternal life. Oh, what joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. Oh, what joy awaits the people who plant those seeds and the ones who get to see the harvest. You know the saying that one plants and another harvests because it is true. He says, but I sent you to the harvest where you didn't even plant. Others had already done the work, and now you get to gather the harvest. Why? Because you're in relationship with me. And again, painting the picture of, of Jesus sort of saying like, 
this work that I'm called to do, this living out of God's will, this finishing the work that he's called me to, this comes from my relationship with the Father. This is Jesus kind of talking about how, how this same living water flows from the Father through Christ because of the whole triune God. Like his nourishment, physical nourishment was coming from that. That God was satisfying him in a way that only God could. He's giving that as an example for them to see. So here's the way I say it sometimes, just to help people, again, kind of get a little bit of a better grip, especially when it comes to all of those things, like I, I shared last week, that big list of things that we're called to do, that we can so quickly see as rules. They're not rules, they're, they're responsibilities. They're responsibilities. That those responsibilities come from the relationship. That because I'm in relationship with my wife, okay, I'm in relationship with Tracy. 30 years now. So 30 years. We've been married 28, I think it'll be 29 this next year, but like we've known each other, we've been in a relationship for 30 years. I don't do the things that I have to do as like a chore. Does that make sense? Like, it, it's not a chore. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a rule in my marriage. Like, like, I love my wife. My wife loves me. There are responsibilities that come from being in relationship with her. I don't view those as, as, as rules. I don't view those as a list of things I have to do. Right? Rule relationships just come with responsibilities. Anyone in here wants to be a friend to someone else, there are responsibilities that come with being a friend. You cry with them, you laugh with them, you meet needs, you, sh you, know, you shoulder burdens together. There's re responsibilities that come from that. And that's not any different in terms of our relationship with God as we follow God. I also love this phrase. I've used this for many years. Responsibility. That there's kind of those two root words, right? Like our response, and it's our ability to respond. This is really our ability to fully respond in love because we're in relationship with Jesus. What does it look like to live out those things? Love our neighbor, you know, love our neighbors who don't think like us, look like us, behave like us. How do we pray for those who persecute us and, and mistreat us and, and bless those who persecute us? How do we love people the way God loves people? Well, we have to be in relationship with God. We have to be in a relationship with Jesus. And it's only because of that relationship that we have the ability to respond in love because we're receiving that love from him. We're receiving that kind of love. John, who is a disciple of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved, John writes much later in his life, in his 90s. Okay, this is after Revelation. This is after the Isle of Patmos. John writes his three letters to the church. He said, God showed us how much he loved us by sending the one and only son into the world so we might have eternal life through him. And, and he says, this is the real love. Again, this is God's love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. This is how much God loved you. He sent his son to take away all that guilt and shame and, and weight of the burden of the rule following of religion. Like he took that away because of his love. Friends, since God loved us that much, surely we ought to love each other. Like this is where relationships 
beget responsibilities. This, this is where it happens. Right? But no one's ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love then is brought to full expression in us. This is actually a verse I use in marriages. Whenever I do people's weddings, I use this verse because I just I want them to understand. Guys, if you only understood that, that the more you receive God's love from him to you, the more you, as a husband and wife, are able to love each other. And it's going to be brought to full expression. It's going to grow in that. Skip down to verse 19. It says, we love each other because he loved us first. Right? We love each other because, because of him, not because of who we are. And if someone says, I love God, but he hates his fellow believer, that person's a liar. For we don't love people we can see. How in the world do we love God whom we cannot see? Right? Like that doesn't happen. How are you going to do that? Here you have a, a living, breathing human, person you can see, a believer in Christ, and you hate them, and yet you still say you love God? Liar. That's what, this is what John says. How could you possibly do that? How could you possibly love someone when you can't see God, but you say you love him? He's given us this command. Those who love God must love their fellow believers. The way Jesus himself said it to, to John and the disciples was, I want you to love each other the way I loved you. That's exactly, he said, the world's going to know that you're mine because of that kind of love. God's love for each other. Now he's just talking about believers. He, it's going to be a witness. So here's where I'm going to pause us today. Because I know you know this. I know that it's here, but it's got to find its way here. Especially as disciples and followers of Christ, Right? Rules do not produce relationships. It doesn't, doesn't happen that way. But relationships always produce responsibilities. Always. Your relationship with God, your relationship through Christ, produces responsibilities for us to do the work he's called us to do. Right? This is why, like, I think I shared it last week when I gave you that big multiple list, like, crazy list of things. It's like none of those things are bad. These, this is part of growing in your faith. This is part of educating your faith. This is part of growing in your walk with Christ. But my responsibility, my, my ability to respond, moves me from a place of, again, I don't have to read my Bible in order to have a relationship with God. I, read my, I get to read my Bible because I have a relationship with Jesus. Like I get to. I get to see what he wants to say to me. I get to read his word to us. I get to, I get to just surround myself sometimes with stuff that I've read for years, and then God will say something, I mean, completely new to me through his living, breathing word. Now, I don't serve you. I just want you to know this. None of you are worth it. Okay, I just want you to know that. I say it out loud. None of you are worth it to serve and to love the way I should, but I get to. I get to do it because of my relationship with Jesus. I don't have to do it. You know when pastors and leaders start to burn out? It's when they forget about their relationship and they just think they have to. I, I get to. I don't tie the portion of my income because I have to. I get to. I don't pray for others when God brings them to mind or their needs to my heart because I have to. 
I mean, I'll be honest, I don't make prayer lists, okay? And if you're a list person, please don't hear me say that lists are bad. You, you keep doing what you have to do. But I don't make prayer lists as a chore of people I have to pray for. We, we, we talk about this in our life groups that, we, that I, my wife and I are part of a couple different groups. And we meet with these groups and we just, we go around and do prayer requests. And I say, listen, the reason we say these out loud is because I know through the Holy Spirit, he's going to bring to mind What's, on, what's going on in your life? And I pray that he'll do that. And when he does it, my job, because of my relationship with Jesus, is I get to intercede for you. I get to pray for you. I get to talk to the Heavenly Father on behalf of a brother and sister in Christ when he puts on my heart something that they're going through, something they need, and I get to pray for them. I don't have to. It's not a list. It's not something I check off every day and go, whew, did it. Did it today, God must be happy. Why? Because my relationship gives me those responsibilities. It produces those things that I have the ability to respond to. I get to do it. I don't pray for others. I don't sacrifice my feelings and opinions with those people I disagree with because I have to. Well, it's mostly because I have to. Let's just be honest. I'm still working on it, right? I'm still growing. But when I sacrifice my feelings and opinions for those who I disagree with, I really am trying to get to a place that I get to. You know, I, I, get, to, I get to put to death those earthly desires to win or to be right, and I get to show them love and grace. Again, I'm not there fully. Sometimes I do it because I have to. And because, you know, you guys will be mad at me as a pastor if I don't. I'll get canceled or something. You never know. But I want to move to a place where I get to. Right? I get to. I get to swallow my pride and love you. See how maybe in the midst of all this, God's using it to get your attention so I can love you better. I get to. And guys, I'm just, I'm just again, the reason we're going through this series is because Every single person that I have a conversation with that just says, oh, it's so much harder today. It's, it's not. It's what we've created to be. It's what we've defaulted to. It's what we've, we've gotten confused about. Because we continue to think it's all about the rules. It's all about being and doing good Christian things. And, and his call to you and me was just follow me. Follow me and, and that is going to build this relationship with Christ, that guys, because of that relationship, we grow in our responsibilities of what he's called us to do. So last week when I read that passage and said, you know, my, my, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, I had someone ask me the question. They just said, well, it doesn't seem like that. <laughs> you know, it's like, it doesn't seem like that. It doesn't seem like the, the burden of being a Christian in today's culture is light. And I said, well, don't confuse light with easy, okay? I don't think that's the right way to say it. I think when he says my, my, the burden and the yoke that you take is, is the relationship with him, right? The relationship with him, he did all the work to provide. He did everything that needed to be done in order to create that relationship. I'm just surrendering my heart to him. That's what's easy. That's what's light. And the responsibilities that come from that relationship, I know I could view them as a chore and as a list and as all those things, but 
It's so much better when I get to view them as my ability to respond. My ability to respond in love because of my relationship with them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ability we have to respond in love. God, again, it's just, for whatever reason, it's natural. It's a, it's a natural thing to um, view these things, read your word, and just start seeing lists and chores and do's and don'ts. And God, I just never intended it to start there. You never intended us to get to this point where we thought those were gonna those were gonna be the things that put us in right relationship with you. But that God, everything that you've done to put yourself in right relationship with with us and you, it does. It comes with the responsibility of following you. God, may that just be a clarity that we need today as we move out of this place and as we make decisions this week to continue to follow you in our relationship and let the, let the stuff flow from that. Let the things we do flow from those responsibilities. And just see how it changes. Ch see how it continues to bring us joy and life and satisfaction and hope. It's welling up in our soul because we get to. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.